Welcome to episode 26 of Oscar Sunday. I'm Austin Johnson. I'm Connor Zagari. And today we will be talking about the Disney Renaissance era from 1989 to 1999. A very, very special place for Connor and I because we were both born in 1995. Later in the show, we will be giving out awards to Beauty and the Beast. The reason that is is because it's the first animated movie ever up for Best Picture. That was at the 64th Academy Awards, so it lost to Silence of the Lambs. Eh, can't really argue with that one. <laughs> but 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 it got there. It got in that group and it changed the game for animated movies. Eventually, there was a whole category for best animated uh, feature film, and that would go to Shrek in 2001. Uh, Connor, did you have some fun watching Disney movies this week or what? I was eight years old again for a week. It was beautiful. It was so much fun. It was great. I hadn't there were some of these movies I hadn't seen in a decade. And yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this so much. This was very nice. Yeah, it was a blast. I love that you bring up, you know, being eight years old, but we're not. And <laughs> you really went out there and, you know, you wrote some reviews for these films. and They're up on filmgasm.com, of course. And, you know, I had a blast. I read them all because I, too, was watching, you know, Disney movies left and right uh, this past week. But, but you know, I have a you know near two-year-old daughter, so I watch Disney a lot you know it's a lot uh, in the background it's you know it's something that gets her attention more so the newer ones like moana and frozen and uh, zootopia uh those are some of her favorites but we do throw on these 90s ones every now and again to see which ones catch her attention and uh beauty and the beast is one of those right and so that, that was really cool that this is you know it's the base of this episode and i can't wait to give out awards to it because it's so much different than the other films we've given awards to uh, it's an animated film. So when we're giving out the PSH award, you know, we're looking, we're looking at voice actors, right? We're, we're really paying attention to that. I can't wait to hear yours and uh, really discuss that one. It's gonna be a lot of fun later on, but this, this Disney Renaissance era, yeah. I, I want to talk about it a bit, uh, you know, to open the show here is starts in 1989 with Little Mermaid and Disney was, you know, obviously has been a powerhouse for a very, very long time. But it was not the powerhouse that we know it to be today in the, you know, 70s and 80s, right? They, they, needed, they needed something. They needed a, a string of talent, a string of, you know, a spark, something. And they, damn, you know, they got it. They, they got what they wanted and needed throughout the 90s. And uh, with The Little Mermaid, I, I know you rewatched this one. Um, how do you feel about this one? Because I, I have issues with just the fundamentals of uh, her being you know, just kind of ditching everything just for a guy. I don't really like that whole bit, but uh, what'd you think about this one? Um, well, it was one of my favorites as a kid and approaching these movies as a 25 year old adult, it's, it's a much different mindset. I mean, you're, you know, we're looking at these as films, not just, you know, funny colors to help us kill time as a child. We're looking at these as legitimate films. Like we're looking at the storytelling, the voice acting, the animation, we treat these no different than we treat, you know, like Rashomon. Yeah. So with that said, Little Mermaid is a good movie. It is a really poor lesson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it, it obviously shows uh, what's to come uh, visually with the animation, how, how gorgeous the Little Mermaid is, right? The uh, using, using un, you know, literally under the sea, using these different creatures and, different animals right and i i love that aspect of it 
And, you know, I think Finding Nemo kind of perfected it, you know, Pixar perfected that, that style, you know, the under the water story, but, but yeah, man, like it's not something I really want like young people <laughs> latching on to. <laughs> I, I would never tell, you know, a little girl, like you should be like Ariel. I mean, Ariel in the short span that we meet her, she is flaky to her family. She pursues her own path, but not for the right reasons. She explores a region of the world that she knows everybody in the kingdom is afraid of. She <laughs> gazes into like on to a human, never meets him, never talks to him, just looks at him and is immediately willing to give up everything she's ever known. And yeah, she gives up, you know, her most prized asset to a, a sea witch who is very obviously a bad person and a bad influence and everyone warns her don't do this and then i think just the icing on the cake you know she was eating seafood in that castle <laughs> oh yeah oh so, yeah definitely thought about that yeah oh god yeah she ariel's a terrible role model <laughs> mm. <laughs> so good and this is actually normally i i i don't you know, totally stand for all the, you know, live action ones, but I'm actually kind of excited for the little mermaid live action one with, uh, it's, uh, Hallie Bailey, right. It's going to be playing, mm-hmm. uh, little mermaid. So that, I think that could be really cool. It could kind of change the game completely, change the story in a good way, uh, take some liberties with it. But, uh, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, of all of these films of the Renaissance, it might be my least favorite or one of my least favorites. It's um, somewhere in there. It's definitely not my least favorite. My least favorite I, is very specific, and we'll get to that. I, I, I think I know we are going to go, and that's also in my bottom tier. Yeah, <laughs> Little Mermaid, I think, is visually stunning. I think you can feel yes. a very different change of pace for Disney, because prior to that, they'd done movies like, you know, uh, The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company were the ones that directly preceded. Correct. And those were kind of subpar. You know, they had the rescuers like Robin Hood, I personally like, but didn't really do very well. Yeah. I think Disney really, at some point in the 60s, they ran out of fairy tales. Yeah. They had to start adapting different stuff like the Robin Hood legend and Sherlock Holmes and Oliver and Company is Dickens. So when they got to The Little Mermaid, they had a fairy tale again. And that helped big time because a, a good chunk of these are fairy tales. Yes. And, and one of them's Hamlet. <laughs> yeah. But you, yeah. I think you could argue, you know, Disney is at their best with fairy tales. And they finally I, I agree stuff to mine from. And they also had incredible people behind the scenes like Alan Menken doing the uh, music. Yeah. Well, Yes. <laughs> yeah alan menken you know yeah there's there's individuals are going to come up because there are certain people who are definitely important in what's going on you know throughout this renaissance run and alan menken might be the most important individual <laughs> he he wrote so much of the music and, and oscar nominations out the wazoo and, and is you know is ar- arguably I, I would say most valuable guy of this run alan menken has won eight oscars for composing all of them for Disney movies. Exactly. That's, all of that's them what for he does. these Disney movies. Yes, yes. Unreal. And they're all different. This guy puts everything into his scores and they all stand out and really help make these movies magical. It, yeah, remarkable. And yeah, Little Mermaid, I would say 
did the did the job. It opened the floodgates for Disney to really kind of dominate in a way they never have before. And really, like they never stopped. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And uh, I, this is the slightest, you know, like break in the run. It'd be uh, the rescuers down under, ah. and, and that comes out right before Beauty and the Beast. But Beauty and the Beast just makes up for all of that ground <laughs> it was it was kind of a stunner you know and we're going to talk about that one a lot a lot later uh the rescuers down under were you able to rewatch this one uh not lately but i do remember that movie very well i i like that too. one. A lot. it's one of their few theatrically released sequels and um you got george c scott playing a poacher i mean come on <laughs> yeah okay that's the stuff i you know you know, I don't know until now, like how special that is. Cause at the time, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know how awesome George C. Scott was. And then obviously he's come up on the show and we love him. He's come up on Filmgasm as well. <laughs> He'll come up all the time. We, we really, really like that guy. Uh, this, this film, you know, uh, rescues down under, um, I think gets lost within this run simply because of how dominant the other ones are. It's not, it's not a fault of this movie. It's just simply how dominant the ones around it are little mermaid and beauty and the beast. It's sandwiched in between those. That's difficult to compare yourself to, you know? True. Very true. And you know, it is a sequel to a film that is kind of a underground Disney hit. The rescuers is not very, you know, if you're not a hardcore Disney fan, odds are you don't know what the hell the rescuers is. And for those of you who don't know, it was a movie about these two mice who are sent on a mission to save children from abusive situations. Yeah, Bernard, right? Bernard and Miss Bianca, yep. Yeah, and then you got Wilbur, that's John Candy, that's my favorite character, yeah. Ah, the albatross. Yeah. Ah, God, I'm gonna, I might watch Rescuers Down Under when we're done here. I haven't, it's been a while. <laughs> I just want to stay at eight years old, yeah. <laughs> these movies... I got, you know, you, you escape. It feels nice. Well, well, here's why I didn't rewatch this one, and I probably will too. It, it doesn't have any Oscar nominations. It, it, it is one of those out of this run that doesn't have, you know, a lot of them have song or something in there, you know, something visual. And then I, Beauty and the Beast has a Best Picture nomination. Uh, Rescues Down Under does not, does not have any of that stuff. Well, I'll tell you why I didn't watch Rescuers Down Under. I forgot. <laughs> I thought that was an 80s movie. I didn't oh, realize no, no. It was 90s. I very much ha- have, you know, I've had this, this group of movies and I, I, I chose which ones I was not going to rewatch. And that, that was one of them mainly because of the Oscar thing. Um, we, we'll skip over Beauty and the Beast because we are going to talk about major scenes, give out some awards. Uh, that brings us to Aladdin. <laughs> well, well, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and do this. That brings us to Aladdin and Lion King. Um, those would be the back-to-back here that a lot of people see as the the, the peak, the peak of the powers for Disney. Uh, you know, you probably have the best character uh, of the whole run with Genie, and then you have the best villain. Uh, for not for me, but I think consensus-wise in Scar. Yeah. Um, and just two two kind of timeless films that I think. You give them both a 10. So go ahead. Yeah. Starting with Aladdin. Um, that, that one may have been my favorite as a kid. I watched Aladdin religiously. That was a very big favorite of mine. Not just Aladdin, but also the two 
direct to video sequels, Return of Jafar and Aladdin the King of Thieves. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was a big Aladdin fan. <laughs> this, I actually didn't mind the remake. I thought it was decent. I thought it had problems, but it wasn't terrible. Uh, but you cannot replace Robin Williams. I can't do it. Yeah, I can't do it just because of that. It's yeah. hard. Genie is, yeah, like you said, the best character Disney may have ever created. And while, you know, admittedly, Aladdin is pretty dated in its uh, stereotypes, uh, you know, something Disney's never really been too good at. Uh, like, I don't know if you noticed the Blackfish line from The Little Mermaid. Yeah, yeah. Lord, I did not remember that. <laughs> but um, Aladdin is full of vibrant characters, some of their best songs. Uh, a beautiful story about a kid who just wants a better life. And a, a princess who wants to have a life at all. I mean, Aladdin has some very relatable themes that we can all enjoy, and a great villain in Jafar. So, it, yeah, it, it checks every box you really need for an animated movie, and uh, I, I still, I still really enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's in my top five of of, the, of this run for sure. I think, I think Genie <laughs> is, uh, you, you know, you were over. You came over uh, to to my apartment you, to drop yeah. off some films, and uh, we were just kind of chatting. And we put Aladdin on, and you were just kind of like, uh, "I'm gonna stay at least till GD comes on the screen because I got to see him." And you know, he he now obviously you know rest in peace, Robin Williams, a guy who comes up on the show a lot and will forever. Yeah, uh, you know, it brings you it brings you to tears. Like it really like, kind of shatters you every line. A hundred bad guys with swords from, from, from that little thing to, you know, 10,000 years, you know, the crescendo, you know, every little thing he does is like, it's fucking money, you know, and it makes the movie, it, it makes it almost perfect because he's in it. You know, it reminds me a lot. If I'm comparing to another nineties character, a live action nineties character, I would point to Walter Sobchak from the big Lebowski there's just not a better character from the nineties. You just, sorry. The guy has so many lines. The guy's relentlessly himself. And that's the way I feel about Jeannie. Uh, I, I, I could watch Aladdin all day because of Jeannie and uh, you know, yeah. Shout out to my brothers, Adam and Jeremy. They're massive fans of, of this one. And uh, I think Adam, my, my oldest brother stands by Aladdin being the best one of this run. Uh, and, and the genie <laughs> and genie has a lot to do with it, you know? But but I, I I do want to talk a bit about just the the storyline, right? Yeah. Um, opening up, I just don't think there's a need for some of this stuff. Like now, as you get older, you know, they they, they have the the resources and they have you know obviously the money, all that stuff to do what they want. Why not cast more voice actors who actually sound like they might be from these places? rather than, you know, these guys who are, like, British. <laughs> it's really bizarre. It happens in Beauty and the Beast, obviously, because they're supposed to be in France, and you're like, what? <laughs> but but in this one, it's so noticeable, right? Uh, it's almost like it's just too on the nose. Uh, as you get older, you're just like, damn it. You know, it's a little frustrating. That's what That's what holds me back from, like, really calling it a masterpiece these days with the lens I have now. But it, it's close. It's close. It's a very good movie. 
Disney's always done that. Disney's always been, you know, two yeah. steps behind cultural diversity. And but it's like it's a, it's like on purpose, you know. And yeah, during this time, during this time, it, it's like it was on purpose. And and we know you guys can do it. Come on, like we know you. you we know you have the research. And, and they try. They try a little bit in Lion King. They tried. Well, I mean, I mean, they're lions. <laughs> There's no yeah, race. Yeah. My, my point, my point being they tried for some diversity. Oh, okay. Fair enough. That's all. That's all I ask is, is like, I, I don't, I don't know. They, they do that over and over, right. With these films where, you know, like you're saying, it's just kind of like they're two steps behind that just gets frustrating as you get older. You're like, damn it. Cause these movies are so perfect as a kid. <laughs> And you just you just catch on because you're like I can't you know I can't look past it I'm I'm an adult now and fuck. <laughs> I mean, dude, when I was a kid, you know, Peter Pan was one of my favorite ones, and that is one of the most racist movies I've ever seen in my life. The whole yeah, what yeah. makes the red man red song, Jesus Christ! I'm just happy it wasn't that again. Yeah, so like, no with kidding. Disney, you gotta hope like, is this gonna be slightly racist or really racist? <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, this is a great way before we talk about the Lion King. I've, you know, another thing that was on Disney plus, uh, Brianna and I were just, I, th- I think I had just watched, uh, I can't remember which one it was Tarzan or hunchback. Uh, one of them, you know, and we were just like on the, you know, on the streaming service and we just started watching boy meets world. <laughs> and there's a whole episode, Connor, I kid you not where Topanga, the girlfriend is questioning if Corey qu- questioning his sexuality the whole, whole episode simply because he's like sensitive oh my god and she's like at one point she like kisses him and he's like what and she's like i'm just making sure and you're like what damn you know this is right in the middle you know uh boy meets world goes from 1993 to 2000 i i did my research and i was like when did this happen that episode was in 1997 and so that's right when this all stuff is going on another disney product <laughs> Well, here's crazy, yeah. crazy. Here's the way I see it. And this in no way justifies everything Disney's like, found acceptable over the years. But this is the way. Yeah. I see it. This was a company founded and built on perceived American family values. And over the decades, family values have changed dramatically. There were times when making fun of black people and Indian and Indians and Native Americans and Arabic people, any minority, making fun of them was totally fine and kind of encouraged if you wanted a jokey scene. Over the years, that has shifted and become inappropriate. And, you know, homosexual people, they fell outside the family value circle, so to speak, of what was perceived to be quote-unquote normal in america what could kids see what did kid what were kids allowed to, to watch and consider to be the american normal and disney's been kind of the image of the american normal for a hundred years almost and nowadays we finally looking at this shit and realizing no and not just in movies but culturally that it's been incredibly fucked up the way we've treated people in this country And we're not accepting that anymore. And that's why we're looking at these films in this new lens and thinking, what in God's name were they thinking? Yeah. Because the American normal is always changing. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. I, 
I, I agree with, with everything you said there because it's it, the, the family thing is something that I think you really hit the nail on the head. It's Disney's power to kind of mold what we believe to be, you know, yeah, like this is the way it should be. That sort of thing. You know, you got these movies make so much money. They just get asses in seats, asses in theaters. And you know, it's sort of scary, but it's also amazing what you can do with that. And, and I think one of the newer films, uh, I think Moana is wonderful. I think the message is fucking wonderful. But I think Zootopia is a genius. The way it, the way it talks about culture, the way they implement the, the police in that movie is, is unbelievable how it parallels what's going on in our society uh, in, a, in a Disney movie. And it also shouts out Godfather on point. Zootopia is amazing. But but that's the kind of Disney movie that has to be made today. It's, it's, it's culturally aware. And in these movies in the nineties, most of, most of them are not. Um, but I do think that the Lion King, uh, I think, I think the consensus is overall as time has gone on, that this is the masterpiece. Yes. This, this comes at the middle, the middle of the road, 1994. Um, you know, I think for you, you, you have it right up there with Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption, right? I do. I very much do. Lion King has been a 10 my entire life. That movie is pure gold. I can't get through the introduction without crying. It's, it's amazing. That movie resonates with my soul. It really does. And I mean, look at like, and not just that, but not just for me, but look at the way like people have embraced that movie. I mean, The Lion King grossed, you know, nearly a billion dollars when it came out. It was re-released in like 2010 or something. Hit the mark over a billion dollars. It was remade last year. The remake, billion dollars. <laughs> People yeah. love The Lion King. It's amazing. It's weird. Why? And I can't really pinpoint why it is this one of I don't all know. the rest have been I don't know. So embraced. It's, and I think you know what I know what I think it is. It's Elton John. <laughs> it's Elton. Elton. John. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know you know who it is. It's it's fucking Ferris Bueller. That's who it is. Fucking James Earl Jones and Jeremy Irons. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah no 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 the, the the voice cast is is Whoopi Goldberg. It's very recognizable. Uh, you you can put that shit on a poster. Whereas some of these other movies don't don't have that. You you and I were texting kind of about some of the villains that are who is this guy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we'll certainly be talking about some villains here soon. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the, the Lion King, I cannot pinpoint what it is. It's most certainly the, the music has a huge, right from the get go, the circle of life, right, right away. And the use of Rafiki right away, uh, holding up Simba right, right away. Just, you're like, where am I? This is fucking magic, you know? And uh, this, this kingdom dude and pride rock has become this icon for for like peace i i don't know what it is this movie i would like you know a movie that we've covered uh previously here on oscar sunday uh black panther i would compare it to that that like people just feel fucking amped when that when that's when that shit is happening and they love every fucking second of it, you know? 
I can't, I don't know what it is, my dude. <laughs> I mean, of course it's all, of course it's all those things we talk about music and the, the, the voice actors. And, but when you just, just the movie itself, you know, it, it is um, like the others. It's a, you know, it's fairly short. It, you know, it goes right into it. It doesn't skip, you know, skip any beats. It just kind of moves like fucking butter and then it's done. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't, I, when I was watching, I was like, what is it? <laughs> And and I know I know you're so so into this one. You know I I can't say that this is one of my favorites of the run, but I I respect it so much. And Jeremy Irons, I I could watch a movie of just him, just talking, mm-hmm. just talking with the scar voice all day. You know he he's intoxicating. Yeah, I for, I, I have three tens in the '90s Disney run, and we've talked about two of them so far. We'll get to the third ten in a bit. But oh yeah. The Lion King, for a lot of us, a lot of people who grew up with that movie, that is one of the first times we were introduced to death. The Lion King has a very, you know, the dramatic death of Mufasa is the darkest thing we'd seen, like from Disney at that point. I think, like, not including, you know, the weird shit they did in Fantasia and like Bambi's mom, maybe. But Mufasa's death is dark on a completely different level. I mean, you've got you know, a family member murdering his brother to take over a kingdom and then blaming the kid and saying, this is your fault. So we are introduced to death and guilt at a very young age with this movie. And the whole concept of the circle of life, it, you know, it tells us about our place in the universe. This movie is so deep and it it doesn't have to be. I think that's what it really is, is this movie kind of dug itself into our subconscious and has just been kind of dictating us like a, a certain way that we that we see the world because it made sense to us when we were kids I, I think that's what it is i think that's why the lion king has stuck with so many people yeah that's beautiful i think i think that's a great point that it, it has carved carved its way in of just kind of being that story that you people first confront death um that's such an interesting point. I'm my mind is now racing, and it immediately went to 2003 Finding Nemo. Yeah, uh, because I would have been eight years old, and that's you know, of course, your brain is still very young and still forming, obviously. But but um, I think that might have been the first time I really was hit by that and like started crying right away. You know, um. I'm also going to shout out something else that kind of rattled me way different than Disney uh, would be Lord of the Rings, return of the King, the opening scene with Schmeagle, hmm. uh, just strangling his brother. We were eight years old, my man. <laughs> that was, that, that rattled me like to my core, you know, I know it rattled my older brother. He saw it in theaters. I did not. And he was like, dude, I don't want it. This is ridiculous. You know, this is like frightening, you know? And it, it, it's, it's, that's such an interesting point confronting death in movies. And then you realize it's, Oh, that's a part of real life, you know? And with Mufasa dying, what is it? 20, 30 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Um, and how it, you know, it is, you know, as you get older, you're like, holy shit, this is Hamlet. And the way it's kind of beautifully set up yeah, uh, with Scar just kind of, you know, leaving him out there, you leaving Simba out there and then, you know, you know, kind of waddling away and then going to get Mufasa and be like, hey, he's, you know, he's stuck. And 
running running over there it's it's like a thrilling thrilling you know few moments and, and then you're hit by a brick wall uh that he he's gone the dad is gone the best character of the whole movie is gone and that, that's that sucks you know because you're like i want to see a movie with mufasa in it the whole time <laughs> but but that's that's what's beautiful about it is that time it makes that so precious and i i see mufasa uh similar to like one and moonlight it's like that those moments are so precious. You just hold on to those in the movie because it's not going to be there for very long. And that's very effective. I, I think you really nailed something there, Connor, um, where it, it does. It has that because it is the, the first of these that really fucks with that really fucks with the death because it goes there. It shows you it. One also, it doesn't just leave it hanging either. It explains through Rafiki. We learn about, what death really is and how death does not mean the end and how the people we love when we do lose them, they're still with us. Like it really explained, like we get the whole grief cycle with this movie. We get the whole concept and it makes sense to kids. It makes sense to us. I wasn't afraid of death after I saw this movie. Like it made sense to me. Like Damn. when I lose people, I'm still going to have them. They're still going to be in my heart. I understood that at like seven years old. Like, yeah, because of this movie. So yeah, movies well, like this, like there's always a you no. Know, every generation has one. We got Up, Inside Out, movies that co- that deal with these same very big concepts, but you know, shrink them down so that kids can understand these ideas and th- think about and adults them. too. And adults too. Yeah, you know, th- yeah. You pointed out how much money these have all made. That's a, that's because adults are also seeing it, not just the kids. <laughs> yeah, straight up. <laughs> uh, I will say that I, I think a huge reason people latch onto it is that moment of, of Simba deciding now as a man, as a lion, not a cub anymore to, to go home, go home and take care of business. Ugh. And that's like, you know, I get chills, you know, you just like, that is one of the coolest things in movies like Django on the horse time to go back and kill some fuckers, you know? <laughs> It's like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's like a great trope in movies. It's time for some fucking revenge. But it's like beautifully done in The Lion King, you know? It's this children's animated movie. But then you have that pretty cool fight between them two. Pretty pretty cool slow motion stuff going on. Uh, I, I, I dug it a lot. I thought Scar kind of went down like a little bit of a bitch. But, hey, uh, Jeremy Irons is just so damn good, so it's okay. Jeremy, I, I feel like Scar got his. Like, just the way it went down. Yeah, it's so poetic, and I like that. And then you know we get that moment after where Simba takes his place on Pride Rock. He becomes the Lion King. Yes, it's so beautiful, and it feels earned. And it's it's a movie that doesn't feel like a kids' movie at all. Like this movie feels straight up like you know you. I I, I'm surprised it's not PG thirteen. Like that's I'm I'm very it's a very grown up movie, but it's done very smart that like you don't realize that as a kid you don't realize yeah. that this is a dark movie until you get older and it all comes back to you <laughs> yeah. whoa damn yeah those hyenas are evil uh <laughs> my 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 major if i had I, there's one like nitpick i have with like the lion king i also love that the, the line the title tells you what's going to happen and you just it's all about the journey well you think uh, it's mufasa and you think he's the Lion King, and then Simba has yeah. his journey, and you're like, "Oh, it's him! It's Simba's the oh. Lion." It's great. <laughs> uh, I, I Nala. Now, 
I love the character. Love, love Nala. But I wish it only need, it would only need to be an extra five minutes. I wish we could see her perspective while he's with Timon and Pumbaa, because when she, when she, when they first meet again, it, it, it doesn't for me, maybe you disagree. Maybe you, maybe you have something to say about it. It doesn't feel totally earned. Okay. That moment, that moment, we get a lot of Simba. We see him growing up. We see him with Timon and Pumbaa, you know, the Akuna Matata, no worries, all that. And, you know, living in the wilderness, that, that whole thing. But we, we don't really ever see Nala like her struggles or this or that. And I wish we had her perspective a little bit more because it, you know, it's a love story and, you know, she's a part of that love story. And it, that part when she comes back and they're like, Oh, you know, I'm playing wrestling around. I'm like, this doesn't feel totally earned. And of course that's when you have, can you feel the love tonight? You know, a huge, huge moment you know, massive, massive song, right? Obviously Lion King had its, had its fun at the Oscars. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. For, for, uh, when I was watching it this time, I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel it like I did as a kid that, <laughs> that moment. Um, well, I understand that it is a bit rushed, but I think what you're supposed to take away from it is this really is Simba's story. It, it and, is, it is, yeah. it is. We're seeing everything mostly from his perspective. And as far as he knows, you know, Scar is doing all right. It's not his place. That's the way he sees it. Nala being there and kind of telling Simba, like, no, the kingdom is in ruins. We don't know that. Like, we don't, we know as much as oh, we, Simba knows. And we're supposed yes. to kind of feel like, oh, now he has to go home. Like, he has to fix this. We don't know what we're supposed to see. I think it's to save that shock when Simba goes, does go home and sees just a desolate wasteland. So I think we need that. We need to not understand what's going on back home so we can have that moment of Simba seeing it for the first time. I, I understand that. I, I definitely get that from a, especially from a child's perspective, but you definitely, it, the way it, it, the way they're hinting it is that he's Hitler with the hyenas when they do the song yeah, and all that's all of that's happening. And you're like, oh, he's about to just run this shit and the hyenas are going to take over and the lions are going to become their, you know, their slaves. That's what's happening at Pride Rock. I definitely think as a viewer now, I totally understand that. But but I can see as a kid, yeah, you kind of want to save that. Like, oh, holy shit, you know, Scar, Scar has totally fucked everything up. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. Well, and also the remake did show that and it it was it totally messed with the pacing. Well, th- that movie is a dumpster fire altogether. So, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I that one's one of the worst live action ones. Maybe the worst. Billion dollar box office. I couldn't believe it. Unbelievable. <laughs> They're going to keep doing shit like that. That's that's good. I, I, I knew we'd talk about those two a lot. Aladdin, Lion King. That's uh, a special place for you. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, let's talk about another one of probably my least favorite, along with Little Mermaid, uh, Pocahontas. Okay. This this ridiculous ridiculous movie. Uh, visually visually really pretty really pretty movie. Uh, Colors of the Wind is a pretty cool song, but I I don't like rewatching this one. Mel Gibson, <laughs> don't know what he's going for in this as John Smith. Um, yeah, don't like don't like Pocahontas. <laughs> My favorite thing about Pocahontas is that Disney was making Lion King and Pocahontas at roughly the same time. And they 
or banking heavily on Pocahontas. Lion King was a sleeper hit for Disney. They were not expecting that to be as big as it was. And Pocahontas did not do as well. So it kind of made Disney think about their strategy. I'm thinking that's why they never did anything like Pocahontas again, because it was terribly misguided. And I think, you know, Disney do, like they do wonders with adapting fairy tales and stories and, you know, giving them kind of a fresh perspective and give, like adapting them for children. They need to stay away from history because Pocahontas really fucks with history and I, in a bad way. And I, I find it a very insincere retelling of early American history and just insulting. Oh, extremely. This is, you pointed out, you know, these movies, they're, they're kids' movies, they're short, you know, and great for fairy tales. The runtime, you know, is usually about hour and 20, hour and 30. And yeah, when you're trying to tell this story and you're telling it to children like this, no, thank you, because this is not right. This is worse than a scholastic fucking history book. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't like Pocahontas. Um, you know, if you're a fan, that's fine. If you grew up with it or whatever, and you find something enlightening about it, I, I find that hard to believe, but you know, it, it certainly resonates with uh, a lot of, you know, female viewers. Right. I, I've heard a lot of, you know, girls who are like, Oh, Pocahontas is one of my favorites. And it's like, okay, that's, that's great. You know, you look up to that character, or whatever, but do you really want to know like the problems with it? You know? And usually they don't, they're like, nah, I'm good. You know, people don't want to, you know, hear the problems with the movie that they like. Right. But I think this show has picked apart all kinds of stuff, including uh, the film we talked about last week, Kramer vs. Kramer. We, we tore up Dustin, old Dustin Hoffman because he was being a dick on set. And we're going to do that here because, like you said, Pocahontas is extremely misguided. Well, in the words of White Goodman, let me hit you with some knowledge. <laughs> so, historically, in real life, this is what happened. The events of this film, when they're supposed to take place in American history, Pocahontas was 10 years old. <laughs> and um, her relationship with John Smith was platonic, if, like, if you could call it that. She was captured by the English when she was about 16, she was forced to convert to Christianity. She had to change her name to Rebecca, and she married John Rolfe. So, obviously, you can't turn that into a Disney movie. Because <laughs> that's fucking horrific. But the fact, like, that's horrible enough, the way they kind of dis, like, you know, just disrespected the memory of an actual human being. Yeah. But then they have that ending where the settlers and the natives are just like, you know what? Maybe we can all get along. Are you fucking kidding me? Have you ever opened a history book? Like whitewashed bullshit. Yeah. yeah good Lord. I mean, I get yeah. that you can't end a movie. You can't end a Disney movie with genocide, but that's what happened. Regrettably. Yeah. So, yeah, so make something else, you know, or yeah. how about this? How about this? It's 1995. Just don't make the movie. Don't come out with it because you got Toy Story, Pixar's first input, which obviously is just a masterpiece. And we're not we're not really focusing on Pixar at all, but but it is Toy Story is the start of it, and it happens in the middle of this. And Disney's like, hey, should we go ahead and like just acquire that? <laughs> <laughs> and they do. Eventually, they do. You know, and it becomes their product essentially. And Disney is still just sucking up everything. And uh, a lot of stuff we talk about is uh, Disney products because, yeah, they have a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. I mean, if the content wasn't so good, I'd have a real problem with it. But 
Apart from Star yeah. Wars, they've done a pretty good job with everything else. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Now, now I do want to bring up a, a film that I like now. Um, and that's 1996. And this is the film that this is the only one I would give a 10. It is my favorite by quite a ways. And that's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Just a devastating, devastating movie that does well, one of my favorite things that movies can do is, is take a, take a real setting, you know, in this case we're in Paris and uh, you know, have fun with it, right. Fantasize about it, you know, do all kinds of different things. And one of the reasons uh, I, I like really, really wanted to rewatch this one is because I love it. And because I learned that uh, the guys who directed this one also directed beauty and the beast. Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, they also wrote The Lion King. So, you know, they're, they're pretty good. They've, they've got a nice little, you know, resume there for Disney. Um, and then something happened. Uh, they worked on Atlantis. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I uh, didn't work with Disney again after that. So, uh, but their 90s run is amazing. And I think The Hunchback of Notre Dame is my favorite now and has been for the past few years as I've gotten older because... Uh, you know, as lame as it sounds, because it's dark, because it truly goes there. It has a villain that feels authentic and real. This power-hungry, like, monster who just, like, wants to, like, just have sex with this character. And this is a children's movie? You, you know, it... This, this, is, this is one that I think should have gotten a Best Picture nomination. I think... I think... Uh, it's super impressive. The, the visual, you know, using, using Paris, the, the style, the drawing, you know, and then this, this, this main character of Quasimodo, man, what the fuck, you know, like as you get older, you just, I, I just start crying sometimes when I see him, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is about him. I, it's same thing with Lion King. I can't put my finger on what it is about Quasimodo that just touches me. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you have something. It's innocence. Straight up. Quasimodo is the depiction of innocence in this world that is so cruel. And he he doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize that he's kind of the only one who can like help this place. Like he's the only one pure enough to make people realize that they're being monsters. Hunchback is my other 10 and it is an absolute underrated masterpiece it disney outdid themselves with this movie and i feel like not a lot of people give it the like the credit it deserves for being just such a brilliant depiction of evil and good and you know love and just everything in this animated setting and oh god frollo is pure pure unadulterated toxic evil tony jay oh my god from the beginning i mean it, it, our introduction to this guy is like almost like the headless horseman in sleepy hollow just this this nightmare shrouded in darkness on a horse that murders a gypsy and then tries to drown a baby holy shit that's in the first five minutes of this movie yeah oh my god and the music good God. Well, that, that's, yeah, that's the only Oscar nomination was uh, Best Music, Original Music, or Comedy Score, Alan Menken, of course, and Stephen Schwartz. Uh, uh, man, 
they missed they missed this they missed this one when it was happening they missed that shit how did hellfire not win best original song god it's 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 one of the best songs of the 90s Uh, of any film of any film it is pure pure evil you know uh we uh you uh myself and my older brother jeremy shout him out again we're doing like a fictional character draft right and you picked you picked him. I did, yes. <laughs> and all and all of us just kind of for a minute we're like, oh my god, you know, he's pure evil. He he, you know, dare I say, like parallels characters like Hans Landa, you know, just like Hans Landa, like he actually goes there, you know. I I love him. I love him because I love villains. They they make movies what they are sometimes, and he certainly makes the hunchback a nightmarish almost almost filmgasm worthy movie it's in the book hunchbacks in the book i want to do this movie so hard on filmgasm and oh my god for i think what stands furlough out for me i've always been fascinated and terrified of villains who believe they have god on their side people who use god as justification for just the most evil shit i mean i brought him up on the draft um Frollo very much reminded me of the Witchfinder General Matthew Hopkins, who yes, played by Vincent Price in the '60s. Just this guy who firmly believes God has put them put him on this earth to kill anyone he deems unworthy, and oh my God, the lengths Frollo goes to just for Esmeralda is sickening. And you know, Hellfire is a song about like. If this girl doesn't let me rape her, I'm going to kill her. That's what that song's about. And Jesus Christ, I, I watched this thing on repeat on my VHS when I was a kid. Like I had this thing just constantly going and I never picked up on these themes until I watched it as an adult. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is, this is almost a horror movie. <laughs> I was, yeah. Hunchback is such an underrated masterpiece. I love it so much. And uh, I cannot wait to do that as its own episode like it's the only disney movie i have in the book <laughs> i understand i understand it, yeah it's so damn good so damn good you know i think you could throw lilo and stitch in there as like a sci-fi movie sure why not <laughs> fuck it uh, all right yeah let's let's move on to one that, that i like but uh, but I, I don't know i'm not not crazy about uh hercules what about you hercules is fun i mean it's, it's not yeah. you know it's not gonna, you know, make me cry or make me think, really. But it's a fun movie. Yeah, it's good. You know, the, the James Woods, uh, Hades performance is, is wonderful. Danny DeVito is great. But I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't rewatch this one. Uh, to be honest with you, I, this is one of the ones I skipped, and just, just not. It's more in the bottom tier for me. I, I don't find it as rewatchable as the other ones. Um, but there again, Alan Menken. There's some great music. No chance, no way. I won't say that's a great song, and there are there are some very fun moments. I fucking love the muses, like they make this movie so much fun. Hilarious. <laughs> They're just like constant hero praising songs of Hercules. I'm like, I can't help but just like, you know, dance and sway and be like, fuck yeah, Hercules. <laughs> yeah, all right. It's you just it's infectious and it's fun, and I love the idea of you know a god turned man, and staying a man like you know finding love and finding a place like that's that's a good lesson you know being i love the whole idea of being a hero is not you know your strength it's this like it's the strength of your heart that's a great lesson 
It is truly. It truly is. I think the character of Hercules is a bit underwhelming. I think that he's that's kind, he's kind of yeah. a Boy Scout. That's the main. That's the main thing. Is it's not. Yeah, not the greatest main character. He's not. Not. Not the most. You know, yeah. enticing. And Disney highly sanitized Greek mythology to to make this movie. Yeah, I'll just say that uh, Hercules was not exactly Zeus and Hera's bouncing baby boy. There's a lot of dark shit happened to make Hercules. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's probably for a film gasm, right? Oh boy, my god! I lo- they've yet to make a Greek mythology movie like that. Closest they came to was Clash of the Titans. Yeah, but no, it didn't cover like you know the thousands of years of Zeus just raping anybody he saw and making countless demigods. But you can't Disneyfy that, so we get Hercules. <laughs> so we get an hour and 20 minute yeah thing all right yeah, it no, is no, no, the, it's james ahead. woods who saves this movie let's be honest here he's he's hilarious yeah. and, and Danny DeVito. Did, really, yeah but the way we did hades was just funny as hell and yeah. he's almost yeah, like a car salesman <laughs> yeah fantastic oh i love it uh this next one 1998 is uh is yeah a powerhouse that's mulan which you know just had that remake, the live action that uh, neither, I don't, neither neither of us have seen that one, right? Yeah, I refuse to pay Disney the extra thirty bucks. I think I've, I think I've gone off on about that on several episodes of either Filmcast or Oscar Sunday. Peppered between these two shows is various rants of mine, and so we only have to wait a few more days to actually get to watch it for free. So we're gonna beat the system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm not even that jazzed to watch it because I've heard, I haven't even heard that great of things. <laughs> but uh, but but Mulan from '98 is is very very good. It's you know got the strongest female character of this run. Mulan. The reason I love this one is that she just straight up with her own you know her own mental attitude and her her own skill. And, you know, strength as a person, she's able to do all these things in the movie. And it's, it's incredible because she fucking saves China. <laughs> and, you know, is super important for young girls who grow up and watch that and, you know, see this girl who's just kind of doing what she feels like she needs to do and wants to do. And, and, yeah, you can't fucking argue with that. You can't. Mulan is maybe the strongest role model for young girls that Disney has to offer. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of their later stuff, but Mulan's at the top of my list because she, she thinks for herself in a society that tells her to be secondary and she refuses to be secondary. She's her own person. And she goes to war knowing she'll probably be killed by her own people simply to save her father. And that's incredibly admirable. And this movie is just, beautifully animated i think it's villain is fucking scary sean Yu is terrifying man it's just so endearing i love you know the ending where mulan shows up with sean Yu's sword and the emperor's crest and her father just throws it aside and gives her a hug like yeah it's so god damn i'm getting choked up it's just so sweet <laughs> it, it is it is well uh right from the get-go you know when you hear her singing who is that girl i see you know staring back at me just like man when will my reflection show you know who i am like damn (laughs) well and and uh reflection 
and Mulan uh, in general has really become kind of a, a big film for the transgender community. Uh, Reflection is a song that's very much about, you know, who am I? And why don't I see who I am in a mirror? It's, it's a very deep song. And I can totally see why they've kind of, you know, grabbed onto that. Uh, 100%. 100%. Mulan is just a fucking good-ass person. That's, that's, yeah. that's someone we can all look up to. And, and, you know, I think we'd be silly to not bring up Mushu. Mushu. <laughs> just this, you know, lights-out performance. Is it just three years in between this and Shrek? Holy. 98 to 2001, yeah. Damn. Man. Are, that's two of the strongest voice performances of all time from the same man. <laughs> oh, can you imagine where Eddie Murphy's career would be today if he hadn't done Pluto Nash? Ah, uh, yeah, I know, man. Uh, that's really crazy, you know, just how much of a party was of our childhood, you know, without us really knowing it at the time. Yeah, just two massive movies and two hilarious characters. Which one do you like better? You like Donkey or Mushu? Ah, uh, probably Donkey. <laughs> Me too. Well, Shrek. Yeah, I just, Shrek is so damn good. One day, Shrek will get its own episode. Swear to God. I promise. <laughs> Hell yeah. The first movie to ever win Best Animated Film. We got to do it here. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was against, uh, for that episode, we'll watch uh, that, Jimmy Neutron, and Monsters, Inc. Because um, those are the three films up for Best Animated Film. That's, uh, that'll be fun as hell. Uh, I hope you guys join us for that one as well. <laughs> it's a great week. Great week. Yeah, let's talk about the last one here before we uh, move over to the 64th Academy Awards. Uh, that would be Tarzan. Just uh, breathtaking on all accounts. The animation using, you know, the, the drawings of the jungle with, you know, these beautifully crafted, you know, the gorillas and everything happening in the jungle. It, it is a jaw-dropping experience, uh, to say the least. Can we just take a second to look at that unbelievable run of films like good god so much influence so many like incredible moments in just this decade it really is remarkable like they top themselves yeah. so hard that they have yet to to do anything like on par with that stuff in my opinion what well, while i agreed while simultaneously toy story bugs life and toy story 2 happened in the 90s well, Pixar Jeez. is just knocking it the fuck out, and they're still topping themselves. Pixar is where Disney's real creativity is still alive. Yes. Yeah, now it, it moved from, during this 90s, it kind of passed the torch into the early 2000s with Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo and Ratatouille. Holy hell. You know, it just, they just passed the torch. You know, here, here you go. Keep going. Take the creativity. And there's a reason we just grouped all these together. I mean, incredible stuff. I'm going to go back over them once more, just name them all, uh, starting with 1989, The Little Mermaid. 1990, The Rescuers Down Under. 1991, Beauty and the Beast. 1992, Aladdin. 1994, The Lion King. 1995, Pocahontas. 1996, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. 1997, Hercules. 1998, Mulan. 1999, Tarzan. Also, also in 1993, Nightmare Before Motherfucking Christmas comes out. <laughs> fucking hell, man. And then 95, also a fucking goofy movie. 
Yes, my favorite Disney input ever. It's uh, not even a Walt Disney Animation Studios movie because it's so small and yeah, but I adore it with all my heart. Yeah, this run is it's 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 for us. You know, it's our uh, it's our childhood, man. And talking about them in that way was was kind of special. Uh, I feel I feel pretty good right now. <laughs> it's therapeutic. <laughs> Tarzan, let's cap this off right. Tarzan. Exactly. This is my second favorite. So let's let's do it right here. <laughs> this was my first time seeing this movie since I was like since 1999. Like I had barely remembered it. I had uh, the trailer of it was on my Bugs Life tape. And I would see the trailer all the time. And I was having like memory moments of the trailer scenes when I watched Tarzan. I'm like, oh, my God, I remember that vividly. Crazy. <laughs> it was so weird. And then oh, man. Like, it is a beautiful movie about, you know, identity and family and, you know, who are your people? Where do you belong? Great lessons there. Uh, the villain is just so like such a shit. Clayton is just pure sadism. And uh, yeah, I think what really stands out with this movie is Phil Collins. Unbelievable <laughs> soundtrack. <laughs> God. When I went to download these songs, uh, there was in the comment section, the top comment was Phil Collins did not have to go as hard as he did on the Tarzan soundtrack, but he did. And he did it for us. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah, he did. He walked home with Oscar gold because he fucking committed to this soundtrack. Good God. It's beautiful. If I, uh, if I moved the camera over here to the living room, you would see that I have the Tarzan soundtrack on CD. <laughs> Beautiful, uh, beautiful. Because because it is, it's a ten out of ten. The the soundtrack is a ten out of ten. The movie for me is a nine, but the, the soundtrack's a ten. <laughs> <laughs> I I yeah I adore Tarzan. This is a very special, very special year for for us as viewers. Nineteen ninety nine, uh, you know, Fight Club, Magnolia, uh, Matrix, uh, Office Space, Talented Mr. Ripley, Sixth Sense, American Beauty. What else do you got, Connor? Uh, Green Mile. Yeah, just a spectacular. And you, you add on Tarzan and Toy Story 2. So um, I, I love it. It's one of those that, that really, really takes me to a place because I watched it a lot as a kid. And it still stands. It's very dark. And the, the opening is so, so sad. And that's a movie oh. that movie just like Lion King just forces you to kind of confront death and process it and, uh, you know, deal with that, that, that that identity thing is so special. Disney's so good at kind of fucking with that uh, without really even knowing it. <laughs> uh, just amazing. I was not expecting to see a baby gorilla get ripped out of frame by a leopard. That hit me way harder than I thought it was going to be. Like that is, you know, you don't expect that in a kid's movie like this. And then to see Tarzan's dead parents just ripped to shreds in the corner. Holy hell, blood on the floor. Disney was not fucking around at this point. Yeah, the, the picture frame of them three and it's like cracked because it the villain stepped on it. Oh man. It's crazy. Oof. Have you heard the fan theory that Tarzan's parents are also Elsa's parents? Yeah, I have heard that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have. Interesting. That's pretty 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 interesting stuff. And you know, I, I don't know I know Tarzan much better than I do, you know, Elsa, obviously. And I've heard another layer to that. The shipwreck that Ariel's exploring in Little Mermaid was their ship. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
Well, yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff. The Pixar theory by John Negroni, because there's not nearly as many movies, right, with the Pixar. So he like really wraps it up, makes it sound nice. But the Disney, there's so many because there's so many movies. I mean, Beauty and the Beast, the one we're going to talk about uh, later and give awards out to is the 30th uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios film. You know, 30th. <laughs> well, Disney, Crazy. You know, they plant these connections themselves. I mean, in Hunchback, in one scene, you can see Aladdin's magic carpet just hanging from a windowsill. You can see Belle walking around the streets of Paris with a book. Like, perfect. Come on, what do you expect us to think? <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so much fun because everybody has their, you know, interpretation and theory. And that's great. I love it. Tarzan, so good. I highly suggest people rewatch it because it is one of those that'll still hit you hard as an adult. My only issue with Tarzan, and oddly enough, it's it's a similar issue to what you had with the Lion King. I already know. I already know. That's why it's a nine for me. Yeah. Yeah. Tarzan and Jane's relationship is incredibly forced. And and the way he learns to speak is like, all right, come on. Like all of a sudden he's just got great fucking English. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that, that, those little things are, yeah, those are things that I, I, I will like dock points. <laughs> yeah, they're nitpicks, but you know, again, we're looking at these as films, not just as kids movies. Yeah. Yes. Which is what they are, you know, and Beauty and the Beast certainly breaks that. It breaks the, 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 that kind of, that wall of, you know, a adult and child. Cause it's so, so impactful and such a beautiful story. Yeah. To date, there have only been three animated movies up for best picture, Beauty and the Beast up and Toy Story three. And Incredible. all three, all three are amazing movies that deserved it. But, Beauty and the Beast being the first, it really uh, is it, a landmark for film. Yeah, and, and there's almost almost 20 years and, and until the next one with Up, and then shortly after is Toy Story 3. So, yeah, it's just a year in between those. Hasn't been one since, amazingly. Like, I would have thought Inside Out had a chance at that. Me too, man. Me too. Inside Out was, was clever as hell. Yeah. It's, uh, it's rare, you know? Rarer than horror movies being up for Best Picture. Like, animated movies are the ones that really do get forgotten. Uh, yeah, 100%. But in 1991, you know, it was special. We have, you know, a budget of $25 million, a gross of $440 million, huge hit. Uh, we have an IMDb score of 8.0, a Rotten Tomatoes score of 94%. Beauty and the Beast is a beloved film. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And six Oscar nominations altogether at the 64th Academy Awards and two wins. Do you want to start with the, the nominations and then move our way up to the wins? Let's do that. Sure. Okay, so I think I think probably best music, original song. Original song. Oh, three songs from Beauty and the Beast up for best song. Yeah, so, so we can go ahead and knock out. Yeah. <laughs> and the other two I think are decent too. We have When You're Alone from Hook. Everything I Do, I Do It For You from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Belle from Beauty and the Beast, Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast, and the winner, Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. Incredible. <laughs> That's three. That's three of the six nominations already. <laughs> That's remarkable. And yeah, I mean, what else was going to win this? I mean, Beauty and the Beast is a beautiful song. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. And uh, who was it? Let's see. Let me think. On the there's like this Disney sing along thing that they did uh, here during COVID because it's uh, there's like different celebrities singing different Disney songs. Aww. 
and John Legend and someone did Beauty and the Beast, and it was like breathtaking. Oh. I I cannot remember who who the female was. I'll uh, I Willow loves watching that the Disney sing along, so I'm sure I'll see it soon. Um, here we go. Uh, we have Beauty and the Beast by. And it's not on here. <laughs> Taylor's oldest time. Gaston is on here. Be our guest. Damn, this looks like fun. How did I miss this? It might have been on Disney Sing Along too, because there's two of them. Maybe. Yeah, there because, it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Volume two. Yeah, John. Uh, Jennifer Hudson. Yes, yes, yes. Who is just? I've got just a lightning fucking voice. She's wonderful. Can't wait for that Aretha Franklin movie. When is that? When is that happening now? We oh. <laughs> who knows, man. Things in limbo. But uh, yeah, those other two songs. I mean, frankly, when you're up against Disney for song, you don't have a snowball's chance in hell. <laughs> but it's it's gonna be very tough. Yeah. But everything I do, I do it for you. That's that's a hell of a power ballad, and I do love that song. Shitty movie, oh, yeah. but great song. Yeah, lyrics by Brian Adams. Yes, yes. <laughs> And when you're alone from Hook, kind of forgettable, but a, d- a great movie that I do adore. hundred uh, percent. That's you know John Williams, one of the one of the titans of the music game. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Bell and Be Our Guest are great songs as well. I personally would have thrown Gaston in the mix. I like that song. Oh, so good. That song is fucking genius. If you read the lyrics, you're like, oh man, this is great. Every last inch of me is covered in hair. Yeah. <laughs> His movie again, <laughs> Alan Menken. God, beautiful. Uh, that takes us to best sound, where we have best sound. Oh, this is quite a group. I know I've said this before, but I hate how vague that award sounds. <laughs> I'm so glad they sound they changed it to, be- to best sound mixing. Yeah, that that sounds like yeah, some lazy ass dude is just like ah, this movie sounded cool. Yeah, it's like, what? well, we got best sound and then the award for best words. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> best looks. Yeah, what? <laughs> oh, it's like, just the movie that looked cool. Yeah. <laughs> for best sound, we have The Silence of the Lambs, JFK, Beauty and the Beast, Backdraft, and the winner, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And the, the work that Terminator 2 was doing with visual effects and sound effects, nothing was beating that movie. Oh, no, no. And, you know, I like this group, but no, it's not even close. Uh, even though we just kind of dogged the category itself. Uh, yeah. Terminator <laughs> 2 sounds awesome. I don't mind the category. I just hate the name that it, that it had for decades. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's, that's, that's mainly because Terminator 2, uh, you know, certainly fits that bill of like, this movie sounds awesome. <laughs> it does. Because it does. My God. <laughs> I, I love that. Ah, we got to do Terminator at some point. Of course. <laughs> um, best original score, which Beauty and the Beast did win. Yes, before we get to the big conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. We have The Prince of Tides by James Newton Howard. JFK by John Williams. The Fisher King by George Fenton. Bugsy by Ennio Morricone. And the winner, Beauty and the Beast by Alan Menken. And I regret to inform the audience that I have not seen those four films. 
Sorry. Really, I, I knew you hadn't seen um, – I've, I've seen JFK and Fisher King. I knew you hadn't seen JFK, but Fisher King, really, that's right up your alley, man. You'd love that movie. I know. I want to see all of those. It's just, you know, availability and circumstance. Never- yeah. Bugsy, Bugsy's the one I, I'm kicking myself over. I need to see that movie. <laughs> oh, we'll get there for sure. But Beauty and the Beast, the score, I think, is its biggest strength. And Alan Menken – God, I mean, like, I, we can sing that guy's praises all day. He really is remarkable in the like the scores he was turning out, like almost one a year for quite a while in the Disney '90s run. And the guy is just, you know, bonkers talented. <laughs> My God, yeah, he's, he's. You mentioned earlier he has eight Oscars, so yeah, he won two of them in this in this ceremony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, two of two of the eight. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Um, and our best picture is that I think that same group. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It, yes, it is. We have the Prince of Tides, JFK, Bugsy, Beauty and the Beast, and the winner, The Silence of the Lambs. And uh, you, if you've been listening to us for even like one or two episodes, you 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 know how much we love Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, uh, it's one of the very first episodes we ever did on the show. Um, I think it's just a masterpiece and we will one day do a best picture showdown based around sounds of lambs and the 64th Academy Awards. But uh, this show is more about beating the beast and the kind of, you know, walls that it broke through um, JFK. You're going to love JFK. I know. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I really kicked myself over, over Bugsy. And of course I want to see the Prince of Tides as well, but we will do that one day. Uh, we'll do these five movies, watch them all. Uh, it's going to be hard to, beat Silence of the Lambs though. Yeah, that was a big five. I mean <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. Nice try. So Beauty and the Beast. Um yeah, I think you know it did what it did win, I think is the stuff it, you know, had the biggest chances of taking home. As much as it, you know, as cool as it was that it was nominated, there was never a chance this was going to win. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was more of a stunt at the time. But a, a little, a little bit, a little bit. I definitely see that um, a, a bit of that. But man, it stands really strong today. It does. It really Stan, does. stands really firm. But but I do think that uh, Boys in the Hood is a borderline masterpiece, and, and probably should have been in that group. But we'll we'll, we'll have that discussion uh, with a different show. It's going to be a lot of fun to come back to the 64th Academy Awards with a whole different lens. Yeah, that's that's the coolest thing about doing this show is we can do that. Yes. I would argue Beauty and the Beast has the best uh, live action remake thus far. It's pretty damn good. Yeah. Another billion dollar grocer. <laughs> yeah, that Cinderella one is, is pretty awesome too. Yeah, it's pretty good. But Beauty and the Beast, like the trailer made me cry. It had that nostalgic quality. The music, Alan Menken score, as soon as that piano hit, I was gone. Incredible. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, I know that when they do Hunchback, it's the same thing's going to happen. <laughs> I can't wait for that. So good. Let's do some awards. Uh, of course, if you've listened uh, to the show before, we have the Tarantino for best line or quote, the Ennio Morricone for best music moment or needle drop, what, what have you, the PSH, Philip Seymour Hoffman for best performance, and then the Deacons, the Roger Deacons Award for the best moment or best scene of the movie. Connor, go ahead and take it away with your Tarantino. 
this was the hardest one to grab because admittedly the script is pretty bare bones. There's not a lot of yes. profound dialogue in this movie. Yeah. Uh, so I grabbed something that Gaston said that made me laugh. It's when he has the entire wedding set up outside Bell's house and says, I'd like to thank you all for coming to my wedding, but first I'd better go in there and propose to the girl. Oh my God. So funny. The arrogance, this fucking prick. My God. Gaston, how do you rank him in the 90s Disney villain echelon? He can hang. He's not one of my favorites, but he can hang because he is fucking evil and he is giant. He could probably beat the shit out of most of the villains uh, from the <laughs> 90s because that guy, that guy's a monster. Yeah, I totally buy that he can go toe to toe with like a demon satyr or whatever the hell the beast is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The beast is a fucking goddamn monster. Crazy. I love that his whole character is just like, I'm awesome and I want that one. <laughs> That's his whole character. Like, <laughs> that's it that's it just shallow as can be but it works oh boy that's perfect uh mine comes from uh the father it comes from bell's father it's uh the scene when he's deciding he's gonna he's gonna go go back to himself he's talking and he says if no one will help me then i'll go back alone is that everything and he's kind of looking around i don't care what it takes i'll find the castle somehow and i'll get her i'll get her out of there and it's uh it's a really cute moment, you know, a father, father, daughter moment. That's really nice. And he's just a great character, you know, uh, has a good heart, has, has, you know, good intentions. And I, I love that. He's talking to himself before he leaves and is kind of questioning, making sure he has everything. So uh, that, that was a very tough one to get. Very, very bare bones uh, screenplay. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. oh man. Uh, the, the Enyo, obviously, Beauty and the Beast kind of, you know, stands by its music. Yes. What's what's your what's your favorite music moment? I this was constantly changing as the movie progressed. I had uh I had the Gaston song here, I had the Beauty and the Beast title song here, but at the end of it I had to go with my gut and just say the opening score by Alan Menken. Oh man. That what a call. That little bit of piano as we zoom in on the castle. It's like a knife in the heart every time I see this movie. It just feels so, emo- it gets me so emotional. I don't know what it is, but it's like, let me tell you a story, you know? It's Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Ult- ultimate fairy tale, like, come along with me and you'll see, you know? Yeah. Pure imagination. Uh, I love that, man. I, I, I chose, I chose uh, one of the songs. I chose Be Our Guest. Ah. Uh, I think, you know, if you're listening to us last week, you know, you you heard how much I love all that jazz, <laughs> and, and Lumiere's moment uh, in this movie is is breathtaking. As I've gotten older, I appreciate it more and more, and it, it is a masterful, you know, showcase of of animation. That bit, all kinds of different things happening, spoons flying off, you know, like it's a, you know, like it's a fucking swim meet or whatever, you know, <laughs> it's so cool. I love I love the attention to detail during Be Our Guest and how how fun it is and that like I'm smiling, my girlfriend's smiling and my little daughter's smiling while that song is on. I it takes the inyo for me. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's great, man. Good choice. Well, Beauty and the Beast, that's what it does, right? It's a it's a gr- great movie to watch with if you have a you know, a niece or yeah, a, a daughter obviously or you know, 
someone that you know look up to bell because bell's fucking awesome yeah bell is one of disney's strongest heroines for one simple reason she has a mind of her own that's so rare in these movies which is so sad sad? it really is like she just you know you didn't give a shit that gaston's hot he's an asshole (laughs) yeah he's not for me fantastic I love it. Well, this, this to me, this next award is the most interesting of the night for me. Yes. Because the Philip Seymour Hoffman award goes to best performance. And here we have a bunch of vocal performances. Yes, we do. We haven't done that yet. No, we have not. So Connor. Yes. I'm going to let you start. Who, who gets the PSH? Who wins the movie? Beauty and the Beast. This was tough. Voice acting is very good in this film, but I had to go with my gut once again and say Robbie Benson as the beast. I love it. I love it. I mean, the range, the range. Benson plays the beast on every level of the spectrum. He plays, you know, this evil, you know, sadistic monster that kidnaps Maurice. But then he plays, you know, the sensitive, kind-hearted man who falls in love with Belle. It really is an amazing range that he brought to this performance. And you don't buy the love unless he plays both sides of that character. And sure. You really brought it, and I believed it. It's a love story that you believe because of the strength of the performances. And yeah, I thought Robbie Benson absolutely killed it. I love that. Yeah, it's a great call. And honestly, I never realized how how much Benson's doing until you know this recent viewing. I was like, man, the Beast is really you know getting thrown around like a ragdoll here emotionally. Uh, <laughs> really tough stuff. Uh, I went with someone who showcased uh, range as well. And it is uh, Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts. She's, you know, obviously the one who sings. uh, Tale as old as time, you know, and her voice is like breathtaking. And the moments she has with Chip are so cute and so precious in the way off to the cupboard you go. Angela Lansbury is so precious in this movie and uh, has always, you know, Cogsworth, you know, her and Lumiere have always, I've always just loved those characters so much. And um, I I think the PSH could go to a few people in this movie. There's just so much talent going around. I agree. I think, you know, Paige O'Hara easily could have taken this for her performance as Belle. I think, you know, Belle is, is like we said, a very strong character, a very relatable, good person. And, I mean, she's a great person to root for in a story like this. And like, as much as it does start out rocky, you want them to find each other. It, it really is beautiful. I think, you know, uh, Richard White as Gaston did an amazing job playing just a complete oh. arrogant prick. <laughs> well, and, and Tony Jay, who we talked about earlier uh, when we were talking about Hunchback, he's uh what's that character? Uh, Dark? Uh, is that how you say it? I don't know how you say it. Um, let me check the it's it's Monsieur, the, Monsieur Dark, yeah, Dark, Dark. <laughs> yeah, he he's frightening in that scene. It sounds great, you know, when he's telling him the plan of you know this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna throw throw her dad in the asylum. You know, ah, we're gonna attack the beast, kill the beast, and <laughs> oh man, shit just gets epic right there. That's that's a great way to go into our fucking deacons. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right, so the Roger Deakins Award, uh, another one that I had issues kind of grabbing. And once it happened, I finally, I knew like that's that's the scene. 
And it is the scene where Gaston confronts Beast on the roof and they have their, their fight. But Beast isn't, isn't grabbing. He's like, you know, fucking, you know, kill me. What do I have to live for? But then he sees Bell and he fights back. Classic. It feels amazing. You feel that love that they both have for each other when he just grabs the, you know, grabs Gaston's arm and starts fighting for love, not for himself, but for love for the first time in his life. And it's, God damn, it's, it really is magical. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he truly finds out what it means before the petals fall. Uh, so gorgeous. <laughs> uh, I, I also chose a scene where Beast just fucking fights, and it's the scene where he goes into the woods and f- fights off the wolves. Um, holy shit. <laughs> that is a dark-ass scene. And I, 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 part of me want, wishes Beauty of the Beast went there a little bit more like kept getting dark but but it's you know it's ultimately a love story and i think a lot of scenes could take it but but when i was re-watching it i kind of couldn't look away from the screen when he was that 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 fight scene the choreography of it is, is just kind of br- brilliant for a early 90s animated movie uh, i think it's one of the reasons i think those aspects the the one that you pointed out the fighting scenes, the combat in it is one of the reasons that people, people took it seriously. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's got everything that can appeal to everybody. And it really did. Like it shows, you know, you look at the little mermaid and beauty and the beast and Aladdin and you see just how Disney kept topping themselves with like the level of animation they were able to do. And, you know, mixing it, you know, traditionally hand-drawn animation with CGI as we got closer to the end of the millennium. And just, they really, you can see an evolution of the medium through these films. It really is beautiful. And Beauty and the Beast, you know, was cutting edge in 1991. It looks amazing. Still looks amazing. I, yeah, I totally see that. Yeah, great stuff, man. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, I just... I, I think it's so important to recognize what it did at the Oscars and what it did for animated film altogether. Yeah. Just push, pushing, pushing boundaries, even if it was for show, just pushing boundaries, you know, and that's what we love here uh, on this show is we're going to try to highlight those really cool things. Even though, even though the Oscars suck sometimes they do some really cool stuff and highlight some really cool films and Beauty and the Beast is one of them. Yes, indeed. You know, at the end of the day, Beauty and the Beast is an Academy Award winning film, and that does mean something. Yes, exactly. That's recognition by their peers. That's, you know, the deciding factor in whether or not some people are going to watch it. It's, it's important to, the le- to, you know, the legacy of the movie. And you know, that's what we're all about here at Oscar Sunday, really, is legacy. That's the biggest thing we can cover. Yeah, and respecting recognizing and and then learning for you and i sometimes we're seeing stuff for the first time and trying to bring you guys along and uh of course disney is something that people are really familiar with um next week yeah might be a little bit different (laughs) we'll see but i think you know a lot i think at this point i think a good chunk of people have finally seen this as not just a classic that belongs in a bygone era but it's something to be embraced now. And especially after, you know, Friday, I think this movie is going to be very much seen in a new light. 
Yes, we'll get to in the stream of conscience for sure. <laughs> I wonder who has already figured out what we're doing. Um, let's talk about what happened this week in film. Not much. It's been a f- fairly slow week, but I've got three three items of note. All right. First up, uh, Robert Rodriguez released the trailer for We Can Be Heroes, the secret sequel to the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl that nobody ever asked for, but is going to be released on Netflix January 1st, 2021. And uh, it looks fucking terrible because I don't know yeah. what happened to Rodriguez, but Desperado Rodriguez gave up. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is not something I'm excited for, nor do I want to see. Uh, they go hand in hand, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm good on this one. But like, who, of all the movies he's done, of all, everything in his filmography, he could revisit the Mariachi trilogy, Sin City, Machete, hell, even fucking Spy Kids. He goes back to Shark Boy and Lava Girl. <laughs> Unbelievable. Ugh, I don't. I'll never understand that guy. I, no, he makes no sense. He doesn't at all. Uh. Next up, uh, Godzilla versus Kong is likely headed to HBO Max. Netflix made a $200 million bid for it. HBO apparently outbid them. So if there is no theater release, that's where we'll be seeing Godzilla versus Kong, which is a bummer because that is a movie designed for a theater experience. Yep. But I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, it, what's really interesting about that is the fact that. HBO Max is able to outbid a $200 million bid. That means they're doing really well, which is a good sign. Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's the box office gross, essentially. Yeah. So weird, this new this new normal. But, uh, you know, HBO Max is, I'm, I'm, they finally reached a deal with Amazon, so you can check out HBO Max and your Amazon Fire Sticks now. I'm still waiting for that Roku news. I know, man. <laughs> Um, finally, uh, this is no longer a rumor. This is confirmed. Mads Mikkelsen is the new Gellert Grindelwald for the Fantastic Beasts franchise, replacing Johnny Depp after a unfortunate, uh, firing. So I have very, you know, we both have mixed feelings about this. This is not how we wanted something like this to happen. We don't like how Johnny Depp was shafted by Hollywood, but I am Looking forward to Mads Mikkelsen's take on Grindelwald. I like him a lot as an actor. He's one of my favorite character actors, and I'm I'm intrigued to see what he brings to this. Same. Mad Mads is just an incredible performer. So it you know it sucks the how it happened, but you know he's 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 incredible. It's he the the role is in good hands. I think so. The franchise? No. <laughs> I no. think uh, I don't think Fantastic Beast is going to make it to five movies. No. I mean, you have the Johnny Depp fiasco. You have J.K. Rowling's un, like inability to stop tweeting transphobic shit, and the fact that the last one was not that good. So yes, you take all that. You've got kind of a bomb waiting to happen. So I'm you know I'm gonna see it, but my expectations are really low, and that's coming from a massive Harry Potter fan. So that's this is a bummer. Yeah, can't believe that. She could stop at any moment, but she won't. She just keeps doubling down on all this transphobic shit. Yeah, she's a damn fool. I don't understand. It's like she doesn't realize that she's spe- like at the top of a multi-billion dollar property. 
that is going to fail if she doesn't stop. I mean, ugh. idiot. Can you imagine? So, like, can you imagine Warner Brothers like kicking her out? <laughs> How weird that would be. <laughs> be wonderful. It would be, but like, that would be so strange. You think she'd finally wake up and realize, like, <clears throat> shouldn't have been saying all that shit, or will she just double down? <laughs> I don't know what she's trying to prove at this point. I mean, oh, who knows? Well, that is all that I've got. What do we have planned for next week? Next week to uh, combine the excitement of David Fincher's Mank that's going to come out on Netflix on December. Is that December 4th? Uh, Friday? Yeah. Um, we're going to do Citizen Kane. Uh, 1941 classic, obviously. Um, Mankiewicz wrote the film. Mank obviously is about Mankiewicz. So we're just going to kind of do a bonanza. You know, we're going to talk about the pride of the Yankees, um, Citizen Kane. What else do we got? Um, it's a wonderful it's world. A wonderful world. Yeah. And then of course, Mank itself. Yes. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to be kind of in that mindset uh, with Herman J. Mankiewicz, just kind of diving into Citizen Kane mostly. That'll be the movie we give awards out to, but uh, man, I can't wait to, I'll be seeing a couple movies for the first time and then re-watching Citizen Kane, which I cannot wait for. I have seen Citizen Kane exactly once. I watched it for a film class uh, my sophomore year of college, and I didn't finish it. So I've never seen the ending of Citizen Kane. Here so we go. This will be new for, new for me. And uh, I know that the development of that movie has some crazy stories behind it, which we'll see in Mank. So it'll be a nice, well-rounded episode, kind of combining old and new for, yes. for a nice weekend. And then, of course, on the Filmgasm podcast, uh, we're doing The Fifth Element, uh, celebrating a little bit more Gary Oldman. And uh, that's going to be a hell of a good time. Sci-fi classic. Yeah, can't wait. Oh, wonderful. Thanks for listening. This was a blast. This Disney episode had so much fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, keep on listening to Filmgasm and Oscar Sunday, and we'll see you next week.